for the love of reading, featuring selections from novels, complete short stories, poetry, and nonfiction, read for you by Linda Pack. You're about to hear excerpts from Eve's Diary by Mark Twain, with interpolated extracts from Adam's Diary, originally published in Harper's Magazine. Here's what I knew about Mark Twain before I started doing research. He was a great American writer. His most famous works were The Adventures of Tom Sawyer in 1876, The Prince and the Pauper in 1881, Life on the Mississippi, 1883, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 1884, and A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, 1889. He had intelligence, wit, and humor, and compassion for his subjects. He was intensely prolific and worked hard. He was an immensely popular speaker, earning much of his living that way. He traveled widely, he had a clear view of society's inequities, and he cared. And here's what I learned about Mark Twain. He was a close friend of Nikola Tesla. He had a keen sense of scientific curiosity and patented several inventions. And he lost a lot of the money he made from his writing on failed investments, mostly in new technologies. And... He loved his wife, Olivia Langdon Clemens, very, very, very much. She introduced him to socialists, principled atheists, and activists for women's rights and social equality. Their marriage lasted 34 years, until Olivia's death in 1904. Shortly after that, in Christmas 1905, Twain wrote Eve's diary. It is widely believed that he wrote this as a tribute to his late beloved Livy. Excerpts from Eve's Diary with interpolated extracts from Adam's Diary by Mark Twain. Saturday. I am almost a whole day old now. I arrived yesterday. That is, as it seems to me, and it must be so, for if there was a day before yesterday, I was not there when it happened, or I should remember it. It could be, of course, that it did happen, and that I was not noticing. Very well, I will be very watchful now, and if any day before yesterday's happened, I will make a note of it. It will be best to start right and not let the record get confused, for some instinct tells me that these details are going to be important to the historian some day. For I feel like an experiment. I feel exactly like an experiment. It would be impossible for a person to feel more like an experiment than I do, and so I am coming to feel convinced that that is what I am, an experiment, just an experiment and nothing more. Then, if I am an experiment, am I the whole of it? No, I think not. I think the rest of it is part of it. 
I am the main part of it, but I think the rest of it has its share in the matter. Is my position assured, or do I have to watch it and take care of it? The latter, perhaps. Some instinct tells me that eternal vigilance is the price of supremacy. That is a good phrase, I think, for one so young. Everything looks better today than it did yesterday. In the rush of finishing up yesterday, the mountains were left in a ragged condition, and some of the plains were so cluttered with rubbish and remnants that the aspects were quite distressing. Noble and beautiful works of art should not be subjected to haste, and this majestic new world is indeed a most noble and beautiful work and certainly marvelously near to being perfect, notwithstanding the shortness of time. There are too many stars in some places, and not enough in others, but that can be remedied presently, no doubt. The moon got loose last night and slid down and fell out of the scheme. A very great loss. It breaks my heart to think of it. There isn't another thing among the ornaments and decorations that is comparable to it for beauty and finish. It should have been fastened better, if only we can get it back again. But, of course, there's no telling where it went to. And besides, whoever gets it will hide it. I know it because I would do it myself. I believe I can be honest in all other matters, but I already begin to realize that the core and center of my nature is love of the beautiful, a passion for the beautiful, and that it would not be safe to trust me with a moon that belonged to another person, and that person didn't know I had it. I could give up a moon that I found in the daytime, because I should be afraid someone was looking, but if I found it in the dark... I'm sure I should find some kind of an excuse for not saying anything about it. For I do love moons. They are so pretty and so romantic. I wish we had five or six. I would never go to bed. I should never get tired of lying on the moss bank and looking up at them. Stars are good, too. I wish I could get some to put in my hair. But I suppose I never can. You'd be surprised to find out how far off they are, for they do not look it. When they first showed last night, I tried to knock some down with a pole, but it didn't reach, which astonished me. Then I tried shying dirt clods until I was all tired out, but I never got one. Because I'm left-handed and cannot throw good. Even when I aimed at the one I wasn't after, I couldn't hit the other one. Though I did make some close shots, for I saw the black blot of the clods sail right into the midst of the golden clusters forty or fifty times, just barely missing them, and if I could have held out a little longer, maybe I could have got one. So I cried a little, which is natural, I suppose, for one of my age, and after I was rested, I got a basket and started for a place on the extreme rim of the circle, where the stars were close to the ground, and I could get them with my hands, which would be better anyway, because I could gather them tenderly then and not break them. But it was farther than I thought, 
and at last i had to give it up i was so tired and i couldn't drag my feet another step and besides they were sore and hurt me very much i couldn't get back home it was too far and turning cold but i found some tigers and nestled in among them and was most adorably comfortable and their breath was sweet and pleasant because they live on strawberries i'd never seen a tiger before but i knew them in a minute by the stripes if i could have one of those skins it would make a lovely gown to-day i am getting better ideas about distances i was so eager to get a hold of every pretty thing that i giddily grabbed for it sometimes when it was too far off sometimes when it was but six inches away but seemed a foot alas with thorns between i learned a lesson also i made an axiom all out of my own head my very first one <clears throat> the scratched experiment shuns the thorn i think it is a very good one for one so young i followed the other experiment around yesterday afternoon at a distance to see what it might be for if i could but i was not able to make it out i think it is a man i had never seen a man but it looked like one and i feel sure that that is what it is I realize that I feel more curiosity about it than any of the other reptiles, if it is a reptile, and I suppose it is, for it has frowsy hair and blue eyes and looks like a reptile. It has no hips. It tapers like a carrot. When it stands, it spreads itself apart like a derrick. So I think it is a reptile, though it may be architecture. I was afraid of it at first, and started to run every time it turned around, for I thought it was going to chase me. But by and by I found it was only trying to get away, so after that I was not timid any more, but tracked it along several hours about twenty yards behind, which made it nervous and unhappy. At last it was a good deal worried and climbed a tree. I waited a good while and gave it up and went home to-day the same thing over i've got it up the tree again sunday it is up there yet resting apparently but that is a subterfuge sunday isn't the day of rest saturday is appointed for that it looks to me like a creature that is more interested in resting than anything else it would tire me to rest so much it tires me just to sit around and watch the tree i do wonder what it is for i never see it do anything they returned to the moon last night and i was so happy i think it is very honest of them it, it slid down and fell off again but i was not distressed there is no need to worry when one has that kind of neighbors they will fetch it back i wish i could do something to show my appreciation i would like to send them some stars for we have more than we can use i mean i not we for i can see that the reptile cares nothing for such things 
It has low tastes and is not kind. When I went there yesterday evening in the gloaming, it had crept down and was trying to catch the little speckled fishes that play in the pool, and I had to pelt it with dirt clods to make it go up the tree again and let them alone. I wonder if that is what it is for. Well, hasn't it any heart? Hasn't it any compassion for those little creatures? Can it be that it was designed and manufactured for such ungentle work? It has the look of it. One of the clods got it in the back of the ear, and it used language. It gave me a thrill, for it was the first time I had ever heard speech except my own. I did not understand the words, but they seemed expressive. When I found it could talk, I felt a new interest in it, for I love to talk. I talk all day, and in my sleep, too, and I am very interesting. But if I had another to talk to, I could be twice as interesting, and would never stop if desired. If this is a man, it isn't an it, is it? That wouldn't be grammatical, would it? I think it would be a he. I think so. In that case, one would parse it thus. Nominative he, dative him, possessive hisn. Well, I will consider it a man and call it he until it turns out to be something else. This will be handier than having so many uncertainties. Next week, Sunday. All the week I tagged around after him and tried to get acquainted. I had to do the talking because he was shy, but I didn't mind it. He seemed pleased to have me around, and I used the sociable we a good deal because it seemed to flatter him to be included. Excerpt from Adam's Diary Monday This new creature with the long hair is a good deal in the way. It is always hanging around and following me about. I don't like this. I'm not used to company. I wish it would stay with the other animals. Cloudy today, wind in the east. I think we shall have rain. Where did I get that word? Oh, I remember now. The new creature uses it. Wednesday. We are getting along very well indeed now, and getting better and better acquainted. He does not try to avoid me any more, which is a good sign, and shows that he likes to have me with him. That pleases me, and I study to be useful to him in every way I can, so as to increase his regard. During the last day or two, I have taken all the work of naming things off his hands, and this has been a great relief to him, for he has no gift in that line, and is evidently very grateful. He can't think of a rational name to save him, but I do not let him see that I am aware of his defect. Whenever a new creature comes along, I name it before he has time to expose himself by an awkward silence. In this way, I have saved him many embarrassments. I have no defect like this. The minute I set eyes on an animal, I know what it is. I don't have to reflect a moment. The right name comes out instantly, just as if it were an inspiration, as no doubt it is. 
for I'm sure it wasn't in me half a minute before. I seem to know just by the shape of the creature and the way it acts what animal it is. When the dodo came along, he thought it was a wild cat. I saw it in his eye, but I saved him, and I was careful not to do it in a way that could hurt his pride. I just spoke up in a quite natural way of pleasing surprise, and not as if I were dreaming of conveying information, and said, Well, I do declare, if there isn't the dodo, I explained, without seeming to be explaining, how I knew it for a dodo, and although I thought maybe he was a little piqued that I knew the creature when he didn't, it was quite evident that he admired me. That was very agreeable, and I thought of it more than once with gratification before I slept. How little a thing can make us happy when we feel that we have earned it. Thursday. My first sorrow. Yesterday he avoided me and seemed to wish I would not talk to him. I could not believe it and thought there was some mistake, for I loved to be with him and loved to hear him talk. So how could it be that he could feel unkind toward me when I had not done anything? But at last it seemed true, so I went away and sat lonely in the place where I first saw him the morning that we were made, and I did not know what he was and was indifferent about him. But now it was a mournful place, and every little thing spoke of him, and my heart was very sore. I did not know why very clearly, for it was a new feeling. I had not experienced it before, and it was all a mystery, and I could not make it out. But when the night came, I could not bear the lonesomeness, and went to the new shelter which he has built, to ask him what I had done that was wrong, and how I could mend it and get back his kindness again. But he put me out in the rain." and it was my first sorrow. Sunday. It is pleasant again now, and I am happy, but those were heavy days. I do not think of them when I can help it. I tried to get him some of those apples, but I cannot learn to throw straight. I failed, but I think the good intention pleased him. They are forbidden, and he says I shall come to harm, but so I come to harm through pleasing him. What shall I care for that harm? Extract from Adam's Diary, Saturday. The new creature eats too much fruit. We are going to run short, most likely. We, again, oh, that is its word. Mine, too, now, from hearing it so much good deal of fog this morning. I do not go out in the fog myself. The new creature does. It goes out in all weathers and stumps right in with its muddy feet and talks. It used to be so pleasant and quiet here. Monday. This morning I told him my name, hoping it would interest him. But he did not care for it. It is strange. If he should tell me his name, I would care. 
I think would be pleasanter in my ears than any other sound. He talks very little. Perhaps it is because he is not bright and is sensitive about it and wishes to conceal it. It is such a pity that he should feel so, for brightness is nothing. That the values lie. I wish I could make him understand that a loving good heart is riches, and riches enough, and that without it intellect is poverty. Though he talks so little, he has quite a considerable vocabulary. This morning he used a surprisingly good word. He evidently recognized himself that it was a good one, for he worked it in twice afterwards casually. It was good casual art. Still, it showed that he possesses a certain quality of perception. Without a doubt, that seed can be made to grow if cultivated. Where did he get that word? I do not think I have ever used it. Extract from Adam's Diary Monday The new creature says its name is Eve. Well, that is all right. I have no objections. Says it is to call it by that when I want it to come. I said it was superfluous then. <laughs> the word evidently raised me in its respect, and indeed it is a large good word and will bear repetition. It says it is not an it, it is a she. This is probably doubtful. Yet it is all one to me. What she is were nothing to me if she would but go by herself and not talk. I believe I see what the week is for. It is to give time to rest up from the weariness of Sunday. Seems a good idea. She has been climbing that tree again, clotted her out of it. She said nobody was looking. Seems to consider that a sufficient justification for the chancing of any dangerous thing. Told her that. The word justification moved her admiration. <laughs> and envy, too, I thought. <laughs> it is a good word. No, he took no interest in my name. I tried to hide my disappointment, but I suppose I did not succeed. I went away and sat on the moss bank with my feet in the water. It is where I go when I hunger for companionship, someone to look at, someone to talk to. It is not enough. That lovely white body painted there in the pool. But it is something. And something is better than utter loneliness. It talks when I talk. It is sad when I am sad. It comforts me with its sympathy. It says, Do not be downhearted, you poor, friendless girl. I will be your friend. It is a good friend to me, and my only one. It is my sister. That first time she forsook me, oh, I shall never forget that. Never, never. My heart was lead in my body. I said, she was all I had, and now she's gone. In my despair, I said, break my heart. I cannot bear my life any more, and hid my face in my hands, and there was no solace for me. And when I took them away, after a little, 
there she was again white and shining and beautiful and i sprang into her arms it was perfect happiness i had known happiness before but it was not like this which was ecstasy i never doubted her afterward sometimes she stayed away maybe an hour maybe almost the whole day but i waited and did not doubt i said she's busy or she has gone on a journey but she will come and it was so she always did at night she would not come if it was dark for she was a timid little thing but if there was a moon she would come i am not afraid of the dark but she is younger than i am she was born after i was many and many are the visits i have paid her she is my comfort and my refuge when my life is hard and it is mainly that tuesday all the morning i was at work improving the estate and i purposely kept away from him in the hope that he would get lonely and come but he did not at noon i stopped for the day and took my recreation by flitting all about with the bees and the butterflies and reveling in the flowers those beautiful creatures that catch the smile of god out of the sky and preserve it i gathered them and made them into wreaths and garlands and clothed myself in them while i ate my luncheon apples of course then i sat in the shade and wished and waited but he did not come but no matter nothing would have come of it for he does not care for flowers he called them rubbish and cannot tell one from the other and thinks it is superior to feel like that he does not care for me well, he does not care for flowers he does not care for the painted sky at eventide is there anything he does care for except building shacks to coop himself up in in from the good clean rain and thumping the melons and sampling the grapes and fingering the fruit on the trees to see how those properties are coming along i laid a dry stick on the ground and tried to bore a hole in it with another one in order to carry out a scheme that i had and soon i got an awful fright a thin transparent bluish film rose out of the hole and i dropped everything and ran i thought it was a spirit and i was so frightened but i looked back and it was not coming so i leaned against a rock and rested and panted and let my limbs go on trembling until they got steady again then i crept wearily back alert watching and ready to fly if there was an occasion and when i come near i parted the branches of a rose bush and wishing the man was about i was looking so cunning and pretty but the sprite was gone i went there and there was a pinch of delicate pink dust in the hole so i put my finger in to feel it and said ouch and took it out again it was a cruel pain i put my finger in my mouth and by standing first on one foot and then the other and grunting i presently eased my misery then i was full of interest 
and began to examine. I was curious to know what the pink dust was. Suddenly, the name of it occurred to me, though I had never heard of it before. It was fire. I was certain of it as a person could be of anything in the world, so without hesitation I named it that, fire. I had created something that didn't exist before. I had added a new thing to the world's uncountable properties. I realized this and was proud of my achievement and was going to run and find him and tell him about it, thinking to raise myself in his esteem. But I reflected and did not do it. No, he would not care for it. He would ask what it was good for. And what could I answer? For if it was not good for something, but only beautiful, merely beautiful. So I sighed and did not go, for it was, wasn't good for anything. It could not build a shack. It could not improve the melons. It could not hurry a fruit crop. It was useless. It was a foolishness and a vanity. He would despise it and say cutting words. But to me it was not despicable. I said, Oh, you fire, I love you, you dainty pink creature, for you are beautiful, and that is enough. And was going to gather it to my breast, but refrained. Then I made another maxim out of my head, though it was so nearly like the first one that I was afraid it was only a plagiarism. The burnt experiment shuns the fire. I made it again, and when I had a good deal of fire dust, I emptied it into a handful of dry brown grass, intending to carry it home and keep it always and play with it. But the wind struck it, and it sprayed up and spat out at me fiercely, and I dropped it and ran. And when I looked back, the blue spirit was towering up and stretching and rolling away like a cloud, and instantly I thought of the name of it, Smoke, though upon my word I had never heard of smoke before. Soon brilliant yellow and red flares shot up through the smoke, and I named them in an instant— flames and i was right too for these were the very first flames that had ever been in the world they climbed the trees then they flashed splendidly in and out of vast and increasing volume of tumbling smoke and i had to clap my hands and laugh and dance in my rapture it was so new and strange and so wonderful and so beautiful well he came running and stopped and gazed and said not a word for many minutes then he asked what it was ah oh, it was too bad that he should ask such a direct question i had to answer it of course and i did i said it was fire if it annoyed him that i should know and he must ask that was not my fault i had no desire to annoy him after a pause, he asked, How did it come? Another direct question, and it also had to have a direct answer. I made it. The fire was traveling farther and farther off. He went to the edge of the burned place and stood looking down and said, What are these? 
fire coals. He picked up one to examine it, but changed his mind and put it down again. Then he went away. Nothing interests him. But I was interested. There were ashes, gray and soft and delicate and pretty. I knew what they were at once. And the embers, I knew the embers, too. I found my apples and raked them out, and was glad, for I am very young and my appetite is active. But I was disappointed. They were all burst open and spoiled. Spoiled, apparently. But it was not so. They were better than raw ones. Fire is beautiful. Some day it will be useful, I think. Extract from Adam's Diary Perhaps I ought to remember that she is very young, a mere girl, and make allowances. She is all interest, eagerness, vivacity. The world is to her a charm, a wonder, a mystery, a joy. She can't speak for delight when she finds a new flower. She must pet it and caress it and smell it and talk to it and pour out endearing names upon it. And she is color-mad. Brown rocks, yellow sand, gray moss, green foliage, blue sky, the pearl of the dawn, the purple shadows on the mountains, the golden islands floating in the crimson seas at sunset, the pallid moon sailing through the shredded crowd, cloud rack, the star jewels glittering in the wastes of space. <sighs> None of them is of any practical value, as far as I can see. But because they have color and majesty, that is enough for her, and she loses her mind over them. If she could quiet down and keep still a couple of minutes at a time, it would be a reposeful spectacle. In that case, I think I could enjoy looking at her. I'm sure I could. For I am coming to realize that she is quite a remarkably comely creature. Lithe, slender, trim, rounded, shapely, nimble, graceful. And once, when she was standing marble-white and sun-drenched on a boulder, with her young head tilted back and her hand shading her eyes, watching the flight of a bird in the sky, I recognized that she was beautiful. Monday noon. If there is anything on the planet that she is not interested in, it is not in my list. There are animals that I'm indifferent to, but it is not so with her. She has no discrimination. She takes to all of them. She thinks they are all treasures. Every new one is welcome. When the mighty brontosaurus came striding into camp, she regarded it as an acquisition. <laughs> I considered it a calamity. That is a good example of the lack of harmony that prevails in our view of things. She wanted to domesticate it, I wanted to make it a present of the homestead and move out. 
She believed it could be tamed by kind treatment and would be a good pet. I said a pet 21 feet high and 84 feet long would be no proper thing to have about the place, because, even with the best intentions and without meaning any harm, it could sit down on the house and mash it, for anyone could see by the look of its eye that it was absent-minded. Still, her heart was set upon having that monster, and she wouldn't give it up. She thought we could start a dairy with it, and wanted me to help milk it. But I wouldn't. It was too risky. The sex wasn't right, and we hadn't any ladder anyway. Then she wanted to ride it and look at the scenery. Thirty or forty feet of its tail was lying on the ground like a fallen tree, and she thought she could climb it, but she was mistaken. When she got to the steep place, it was too slick, and down she came. She would have hurt herself, but for me. Was she satisfied now? No, nothing ever satisfies her but demonstration. Untested theories are not in her line. She won't have them. It is the right spirit, I concede it. It attracts me. I feel the influence of it. If I were with her more, I think I should take it up myself. Well... She had one theory remaining about this colossus. She thought that if we could tame it and make him friendly, we could stand it in the river and use him for a bridge. It turned out he was already plenty tame enough, at least as far as she was concerned. So she tried her theory, but it failed. Every time she got him properly placed in the river and went ashore to cross over him, he came out and followed her around like a pet mountain like the other animals. They all do that. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, all without seeing him. It is a long time to be alone. Still, it is better to be alone than unwelcome. Friday. I saw him again for a moment last Monday at nightfall, but only for a moment. I was hoping he would praise me for trying to improve the estate, for I had meant well and worked hard. But he was not pleased and turned away and left me. He was also displeased on another account. I tried once more to persuade him to stop going over the falls. That was because the fire had revealed to me a new passion, quite new and distinctly different from love, grief, and those others which I had already discovered. Fear. And it is horrible. I wish I had never discovered it. It gives me dark moments. It spoils my happiness. It makes me shiver and tremble and shudder. But I could not persuade him for he has not discovered fear yet, and so he could not understand me. I had to have company. I was made for it, I think, so I have made friends with the animals. They are just charming, and they have the kindest disposition and the politest ways. They never look sour. They never let you feel that you are intruding. They smile at you and wag their tail if they've got one. 
and they're always ready for a romp or an excursion or anything you want to propose. I think they are perfect gentlemen. All these days we have had such good times, and it hasn't been lonesome for me ever. <laughs> lonesome? No, I should say not. Where there's always a swarm of them around, sometimes as much as four or five acres, you can't count them. And when you stand on a rock in the midst and look out over the furry expanse, it's so mottled and splashed and gay with color and frisking sheen and sunflash and so rippled with stripes that you might think it was a lake, only you know it isn't. And there's storms of sociable birds, and hurricanes of whirring wings. And when the sun strikes all that feathery commotion, you have a blazing up of all the colors you can think of, enough to put your eyes out. We have made long excursions, and I have seen a great deal of the world, almost all of it, I think. And so I am the first traveler and the only one. When we are on the march, it is an imposing sight. There's nothing like it anywhere. For comfort, I ride a tiger or leopard, because it is soft, and has a round back that fits me, and because they're such pretty animals. But for long distance, or for scenery, I ride the elephant. He hoists me up with his trunk, but I can get off by myself when we are ready to camp, and he sits and I slide down the back way. The birds and animals are all friendly to each other, and there are no disputes about anything. They all talk. But it must be a foreign language, for I cannot make out a word they say. Yet they often understand me when I talk back, particularly the dog and the elephant. It makes me ashamed. It shows that they are brighter than I am for I want to be the principal experiment myself. And I intend to be, too. I have learned a number of things and am educated now. But I wasn't at first. I was ignorant at first. At first it used to vex me, because, with all my watching, I was never smart enough to be around when the water was running uphill. But now I do not mind it. I have experimented and experimented until now I know it never does run uphill except in the dark. I know it does in the dark because the pool never goes dry, which it would, of course, if the water didn't come back in the night. It is best to prove things by actual experiment. Then you know. Whereas if you depend on guessing and supposing and conjecturing, you never get educated. Some things you can't find out, but you will never know you can't by guessing and supposing. No, you have to be patient and go on experimenting until you find out that you can't find out. And it is delightful to have it that way. It makes the world so interesting. If there wasn't anything to find out, it would be dull. Even trying to find out and not finding out is just as interesting as trying to find out and finding out. And I don't know but more so. The secret of the water was a treasure until 
I got it. Then the excitement all went away, and I recognized a sense of loss. So by experiment, I know that wood swims and dry leaves and feathers and plenty of other things. Therefore, by all that cumulative evidence, you know that a rock will swim. But you have to put up with simply knowing it, for there isn't any way to prove it up to now. But I shall find a way. Then that experiment will go. Such things make me sad, because by and by, when I have found out everything, there won't be any more excitements. And I do love excitement so. The other night I couldn't sleep for thinking about it. See, at first I couldn't make out what I was made for, but now I think it was to seek out all the secrets of this wonderful world and be happy and thank the giver of it all for devising it. I think there are many things to learn yet. I hope so. And by economizing and not hurrying too fast, I think they will last weeks and weeks. I hope so. When you cast up a feather, it sails away on the air and goes out of sight. Then you throw up a clod of dirt, and it doesn't. It comes down, every time. I have tried it and tried it, and it is always so. I wonder why it is. Of course, it doesn't come down, but why should it seem to? I suppose it is an optical illusion. I, I mean, one of them is, I don't know which one... It may be the feather, it may be the clod. I can't prove which it is. I can only demonstrate that one or the other is a fake and let a person take his choice. By watching, I know that the stars are not going to last. I have seen some of the best ones melt and run down the sky. And since one can melt... They all can melt. Since they can all melt, they can all melt on the same night. That sorrow will come. I know it. I mean to sit up every night and look at them as long as I can keep awake. And I will impress those sparkling fields on my memory, so that by and by, when they are taken away, I can, by my fancy, Restore those lovely myriads to the black and make them sparkle again and double them by the blur of my tears. You have just heard Excerpts from Eve's Diary by Mark Twain, originally published in Harper's Magazine, Christmas 1905. Twain wrote another short section that follows this piece, a postlude, that takes place after the fall, outside the garden. In it, Eve parses her new discoveries about becoming a wife, and Adam comes to terms with the responsibilities of manhood. At the end, standing at the side of Eve's grave, Adam says, Wheresoever she was, there was Eden. And that is all for this edition of 
for the love of reading Eve's Diary. The material read on this edition of For the Love of Reading was selected, reviewed, edited, and performed by Linda Pack. The program was engineered by Alicia Bales. This program is archived and available for online listening at kzyx.org. And at lindapack.net, you will find podcast and audio links to all of the shows aired on For the Love of Reading. Mendocino County Remembered Oral Histories Collected and Published Under the Auspices of the Mendocino Historical Society for the American Bicentennial in 1976. Read by Linda Pack. Today, from Ukiah, the recollections of Elizabeth Scholl, born 1879. I was born up at a ranch between here and Ukiah, and this ranch that my father lived on was what was originally the Ranch Angle Ranch. He built a big stable out there, and old Seabiscuit, the famous racehorse, was kept out there when he wasn't being used for races. A lot of people went out there just to see him, because Seabiscuit was known all over California, and even in the East for his racing. He was the gentlest thing you ever saw. I remember going out there, because I was grown then. He had his own paddock, and I was going through the place with a man, and I said, May we go and see him? And he said, Yes, but he said, You're about the first one that's ever asked me. Other people just ram through. And I said, Well, that wasn't the way I was taught. There was a racetrack in Ukiah, south of town. Well, that's just right out on the edge of the main part of town now. They had seats that were built up like in like in a lot of places, um, like in uh, baseball gardens. And they weren't very comfortable, but they were there, and you could watch the races from there. Well, when we got our first saddle horse, oh, it was a very beautiful thing. I used to ride her over that hill, and I'd ride her back. But I usually went through because it was easier. Now, they call it low gap. I used to ride her to school when I taught there. Well, that's about the only place I taught. Then I got married. Now, you know, that's what you do. I remember all the wars. Oh, I certainly do, because I went down to sea at the Spanish-American War. The other people go, and the other two, I went to see some of my own go. It was boys and men that I knew and went to school with. They were young men, but I knew them. I have two sons that were in the last World War all the way through. Now, one was a paratrooper. You may know that I was most concerned about him and was so sorry because I got a letter from the man that was in the division he was in. He must have been a wonderful man because he wrote a letter to the mother of each boy in his group and I had gotten his letter. This just broke my heart. I hate to think about it. When I got this letter, I thought, well, what a wonderful thing for a man to take time. I have a picture of him with the battalion, and I went one day, and this letter was in there, and I thought, 
Oh, he's written an answer to my letter. And of course I took it down, and he had died. Died in action was written across. It just made me sick. Oh, no, don't, don't, don't worry. I've tasted everything in life. Now, other things I did that are past. <laughs> Half my mind, too many things, trying to crowd them all in. Well, no special days stand out in my mind. Of course, the sorrows that you have, they stay there. I just try to forget them and think, well, that's a part of life. I accept it and go on. That's all you can do. Oh, I love to think of the country and my home and that I had the opportunity to be there, to watch the turkeys go to their nest that they'd stowed off in the hills and all the beautiful flowers and those beautiful white lilies we'd gather on the hill. I was a flower lover. Well, I am yet. And we used to go for picnics, just any place we'd happen to want to go. I'd roam the hills and the dales and the valley as much as I could as a younger person, and then I used to take my children there after they were born. We liked to go and camp out overnight. I am a lover of the hills and nature. I really am. And I can see beauty in things, even when other people say they don't see anything. I don't know why. Because you get up and go out in the morning, and you look at the sky, and you look at the sun coming up or going down, it's a beautiful sight. To me, it is. There's beauty in it if you can stop and look at it and think about it. I go and get up even yet, old gal that I am, and go out in the backyard and look at the mountains on either side. Could you see anything more beautiful than those mountains and the valley? No, you can't. God gave us that, and he gave it to us to enjoy. You got to get up This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.